Press. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha and Peachy Parsha, which is our Monday extravaganza. All right, so this is January 10th. Today is January 10th, 2022, and we're starting a brand new Torah portion this week, which is Beshalach, in where or in which the sea splits. Uh-oh, I should have said spoiler alert, so that way we would give uh, a chance for those that didn't want the spoiler to get spoiled, to have a chance to, um, to, uh, to fast forward. But the truth is that as we know, it's like a given. You know, you got the exodus, you got the splitting of the sea, and then you get the Ten Commandments. And then you got the golden calf. Boom, 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 boom. Then building of the Mishkan and the tabernacle and the rest is off to the races. So this week we read about the aftermath of the Exodus or the way I'd like to put it is Exodus part two. Because as we'll see today, there's really two parts of the Exodus. Part one is getting out of Egypt. Part two is getting rid of the Egypt inside of you. And there's two, two totally different jobs. So you know, you know the phrase, you know, you could take the Jew out of Egypt but you can't just take the Egypt out of the Jew. What I mean is it's easier to leave Egypt than to eradicate the trace of the inner Egypt inside. That already takes a lot of work. That takes the internal work. And that's what the splitting of the sea, as we'll see, that's what the splitting of the sea um, represents. Okay, so let's jump inside. I'm going to share my screen. The way we'll do this, of course, on Mondays, is I like to reference our in-person Chumash, a.k.a. the Gutnik condition. Um, centering what? Do you have the page? What page yeah, are we on? 423. 423 is the page number. I'm going to pull it up over here. But I'll reconcile it, of course, with the, with the online translation. So 423. Let's go. 423. Beshalach. It gets very complicated. There's a lot of psychology here, a lot of... Kabbalah, a lot of philosophy. It's as you'll see. It's a it's a pretty enjoyable read. Hey, Mark. Good to see you. Welcome. Got lunch for you. All right. Peshalach begins with chapter thirteen of Exodus, verse number seventeen. I'm going to start reading, and uh, feel free to follow along. All right. When Pharaoh sent the people away, or it came to pass when Pharaoh let the people go, All right? God did not lead them through the land of the Philistines because it was too close. Right? So here it says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, for it was near. Why? Because God said, this is because God said, when the people see a war, they may regret leaving and return to Egypt. It's interesting what's going on over here. The Torah suggests that Hashem did not take the Jewish people on the most direct path to the land of Israel, or the land of Canaan, because out of fear that if they would encounter some resistance, they would just walk out. And I can only, ha I only have one experience in my life that I can liken this to, and that is going to Ikea, which I've shared many times before. Right? You go to Ikea, they don't want to let you get out that easy. Most stores, you walk in, you look around, and if nothing catches your attention, you walk out. Right? You go in, you go out. Ikea, good luck, not happening. Ikea, you get in, you can't even get out. The only, time, the only way you're going to get out is pretty much through the checkout or after calling you know, 911, whatever it is. Like at some point, you'll get out, but hopefully they're going to make a sale in the process. So in this context, I would say we have a very similar phenomenon, which is that Hashem says, the Torah is letting us into God's thought process, if you will. God said, I don't want to take them on a straight path from Egypt to the land of Canaan, to the land of Israel, because if they encounter resistance, I don't want them to head straight back to Egypt. I want to make it hard for them. I want to take them on a bit of a uh, circuitous route so that if they want to go back, it's going to actually be complicated for them to go back. So they might say, you know what? Might as well just say where we are and deal with the issue. Right? To make it difficult for them to get out, start to get back, is what divine intention was. Let's take a look at Rashi. Rashi says, um, 
for it was near and it was easy to return by that road to Egypt. That's why God did not want to take them on that easy path where they could just turn right around and head back to Egypt. Um, what was the fear that when they see war, they're going to panic and, and, and retreat? So what kind of war? So Rashi says, for instance, the war of and the Amalekites and the Canaanites descended. In other words, Amalek, Canaan, these wars would have tr could have triggered um, a retreat. So if they had gone, Rashi says, if they had gone on a direct route, they would have returned. Now, if, when he led them around in a circuitous, I'm, I'm pronouncing it wrong, circuit, circuitous, circuitous, huh? Circuitous. Circuitous. I think I'm, I'm, I was pronouncing it wrong. Sir, say it again? Circuitous. Circuitous. Circuitous route, right? If you led them around in a, a roundabout way, they said, let us appoint the leader and return to Egypt. How much more would they have done this if he had led them on a direct route? In other words, if when he took them on a schlepping route all the way around, there was a pain to go back, they still said, let's go back. How much more so if there was a direct route and they wouldn't even need a leader, they could just turn right around. All right, let's continue. This back in... Huh? Something interesting. Yeah. Who, who is Debek Tov? Debek Tov, I'm assuming, is a commentary on Rashi. Or maybe it's a commentary on Midrash. The word could have been understood as he brought them full circle. Mm -hmm. That is, he took them all the way back to where they came from. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Good. All right. Verse number 18. So what happened? So what happened? So Torah says, so God led the people on a roundabout route. That's a better word. Easier to, to, to pronounce. Roundabout route through the desert to the Sea of Reeds, to the Red Sea. The children of Israel were armed when they went up out of Egypt. B'chamushim, they were armed. Okay, so he basically took them on a roundabout route. Um, in the Chumash here, we actually have some good pictures of the route. Um, for those that have the Gunna condition, you can open up, or you can turn the page to 1100 and... Actually, hold on. Maybe not. Nope. No, no, no. Cancel that. Cancel that. I thought it was here. I thought it was in the back of my bar, but it's not. There might be another another image somewhere. Uh, maybe the end of Exodus, possibly. Let's see. If you have any images. If not, we'll just have to imagine a circle in our own minds, which is definitely doable. Um, Okay, it is what it is. He basically took them, instead of a straight path, he took them on a bit of a roundabout path, and that was that. Was that. All right, and they were armed. The point is that they had, they, had, uh, they, had, they had some sort of ammunition and other items. Um, let's see if there is a Rashi on this. A second. Let's see what we got over here. Um... Armed, Rashi says, he led them around in the desert uh, in a roundabout way. He caused them to go up armed, for if he had led them around through civilization, they would not need to have, they would not have had to provide for themselves with everything they needed, but only par, like a person who travels from place to place and intends to purchase from whatever he will need. But if he travels a long distance into a desert, he must prepare all the necessities for himself. Very interesting. In other words, if you, let's say you're taking a road trip. And you know you're headed to, you know, from Atlanta, let's say, to Orlando and then Miami. Okay, so you don't, need to, you don't need, need to prepare so many provisions because you know there's kosher in Orlando, there's kosher in Miami, there's a big cities with supermarkets, you can get it. You need a can opener, you get a can opener. They have stores, you stop in Walmart or Target or whatever, and you get something. But if you know you're headed out to the desert, you're not going to be able to get anything, then you have to bring all your stuff with you. And so Rashi says in a similar way, that if they had gone through civilizations, all right, they would have already had, you know, they could already get what they needed over there. But if they're going into the desert, into the wilderness, they need to bring weapons. Rashi says this verse was written only to clarify the matter, so that you should not wonder where they got weapons in the war with Hamalek and in the wars with Sikhan and Og and Midjah. For the Israelites smote them with the point of the sword. 
In other words, the Torah tells us later on in the Torah about all these wars the Jews had. And the question is, where did they get the weapons from? Suddenly they're armed? So the Torah preempts all this by saying that when they left Egypt, on that first journey, they were already armed. They took out, it's apparently they took out weapons when they left Egypt to begin with. All right, let's, oh, here we go. That's the basic interpretation. Another interpretation says Rashi, and this is what, this is a famous idea. Hey, Olya, welcome. Famous idea is Chamusha means divided by five, meaning that only one out of five Israelites went out and four-fifths died during the three days of darkness, the plague of darkness. This is a famous interpretation that, that has it, and we've discussed this last week, that most of the Jewish people, most of the children of Israel, actually died during plague number nine, the plague of darkness. Vachamushim, alu, could either mean that the Jews left armed, or they only left with a fifth. Chamushim, like chamesh is five, chamushim means a fifth. In this context, a fifth left. Let's continue verse number 19. Um, okay, so what happens is Moses, Moshe, took Yosef's bones, Joseph's bones with him because he, Yosef, had made his brothers swear that they would make their children swear to do so. Wow, a lot of swearing going on in, uh, in a promising way, right? So Joseph had told his brothers to tell their children to make sure to take his remains out of Egypt when they eventually leave. Let's continue. And what was the, what was the oath? He said, saying, God will surely remember you, and you shall bring up my bones, shall bring up my bones from here with you. This was the promise. This was the pledge. Hey, Joy, good to see you. This was the promise and the pledge that Yosef had made his brothers swear to make their children swear to make sure that he gets out. Yeah? About Hamushim, I was just now looking. Rashi doesn't agree with the alternative, uh, with the alternate threat. He says, uh, and the children of Israel were armed, it's what Ain, Hamushim, Ella, means someone so small I can't read it. It says the word Hamushim in this context can only mean armed. Interesting. So, in other words, he was making the argument. Yeah, it doesn't mean one out of five. Doesn't mean the fifths, yeah. Okay, look, it's interesting because the Rebbe also, if I'm not mistaken, pushed back against that. I mean, it's a classic teaching, so you can't like say it does, it's not, not legit. But the Rebbe pushed back a little bit against that notion that four-fifths of the Jewish people didn't make it out. It's, it's a tr- there is a teaching on that, but the Rebbe in his talks at some point did push back a little bit on that and say, you know, not necessarily four-fifths, died, etc. Whatever what would be considered an exodus for us if, if, if four-fifths... I know, right? You would think. And if four-fifths constituted... Yeah, if, if four-fifths consisted of two million people, can you imagine what all five-fifths were? About 10, 12 million people. It would be a lot of people. Would, I don't understand how as a people we would merit then getting the Torah if, 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 if four-fifths, you know, if, if for, for the most part... We did it. Look, according to this tradition, yeah, you're right. Four-fifths didn't merit. The one-fifth did. <laughs> I understand your question. Your question is, what kind of people is it if one out of five, only one out of five is part of, uh, part of what makes it out? But uh, alternatively, you could say, according to this tradition, which, again, it seems like Rashi is not happy with. It's not his first interpretation. But, uh, but Rashi still does cite it. But according to this tradition, um, what you have here is almost like, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like a, it's like a, a self-selection. It's like, okay, we're going to create a group. So here we have a family. There is a family dynamic, the children of Israel, all the sense of Yaakov, okay, so they're a family. But there's going to be a self-selection of who wants to opt in to the next stage. So now, this is who you are, family tree, but who wants to opt in now to be dedicated to God and dedicated to get the Torah, mitzvahs, etc., and live that life? And you had one-fifth that opted in. This is according to that tradition. I'm not saying that's exactly what happened. I'm just saying that's one tradition of what happened. But, but you know... <coughs> Seventy facets, right? It seems like a <laughs> common thread of the plagues is that they affected the Egyptians, but they didn't touch. Right. 
Right. The plague didn't. The, the ten plagues didn't. Right. But according to this tradition, there was another plague, the eleventh plague, if you will, that, that hit the Jews. Yeah. Again, I'm not... I wasn't there. I can't tell you for sure. I can only tell you that this is a legit tradition. Hi, Joy. Good to see you. All right. So let's continue. So what's going on over here, and what I don't want to get lost in the shuffle in verse 19, is that it's Moses himself who took the bones of Yosef. And I've shared with this, I've shared with you many times, several times at least, the tradition of how Moses um, came up with the bones of Joseph. Let's see very quickly. Um, no, it's not over here. Yeah, the, the tradition is that the night of the Exodus, remember when, when Pharaoh was going around saying, get out, get out, you know. So Moses says, yeah, we'll go. But he says to himself, at least, I need to find the bones of Yosef. So he goes, he, and he doesn't know where Yosef is buried. He, he believes that Yosef is in the Nile River, but not exactly sure where. So he goes to, um, who was still alive? Her name was Serach, the daughter of Usher. She was the one who broke the news to Jacob that Yosef was still alive, that Joseph was still alive. And he, Jacob blessed his, his granddaughter with long life. So she lived all the way through the whole Egyptian experience. She lived before the Jews went down to Egypt. She lived throughout the 210 years of slavery. She lived hundreds of years, blessed with long life from her Zaidi, from her grandpa, her grandfather, Yaakov, Jacob. Anyway, she tells Moses, I know exactly where Yosef is buried. He's in this place, etc. And then Moses makes his way over to that place in the Nile River, puts down a piece of paper, whatever it is, whatever writing, you know, surface they had, written with the words, inscribed with the words, Ale Shar, which means rise ox. He places it on the Nile River and uprises the remains of Joseph. And that's how Moses collected the remains of Yosef. They had buried him or interred him, whatever the right word is. They had put him, Joseph, in the Nile River because Joseph was a source of blessing and the Nile was a source of blessing. So they wanted the blessing of Yosef to bless the blessing of the Nile River and keep the country irrigated and the land fertile. That's what they wanted. Well, that was, uh, so it was until the Exodus, and then Moses took Joseph's bones with him. Let's continue. So what we're reading here is about the, uh, the aftermath and the root of the Exodus. So verse 20 specifies some locations. So on the second day, on the second day of their travel, they traveled from Sukkot, Sukkot, and they encamped in Esam, or Etam, at the edge of the desert. Okay, let's continue verse 21. God went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to guide them along the route, and at night, and at night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they would travel day and night. So there's a, there are many levels of interpretation Many levels of significance to this verse 21. I'm going to share with you a very simple way of understanding it, and then we'll go a little bit deeper. On a very simple level, you know, imagine you're traversing the desert in the Middle East. Can you imagine what the climate probably is like? And remember, this is now springtime. So what does it feel like? You can imagine. Help me out here, guys. In Egypt. Can we assume it's hot and sunny? Yeah, it's going to be hot. So what does God provide during the day? A cloud. What's the benefit of a cloud? You with me? Shade. Right? And at night, what does God provide? At night it's cool. What does God provide? A fire. Why? Either for warmth, although the Torah doesn't say that. The Torah does say to give them light. Have light. Have the pillar of fire. will travel. So on a very basic level, if you don't want to get any, you know, if you don't want to get psychological or mystical, if you want to just get pshat, just a simple understanding of, of the story here, God gives the Jewish people on their travels a cloud, cloud cover by day and a fire to illuminate at night. These are wonderful miracles and wonderful gifts. Right? Imagine you're traveling in the desert and you have like a portable cloud. By day, it would be fantastic. And then at night, 
you have the light that you need to be able to continue your journey so that you can pretty much go whenever you need to, that's priceless. Priceless. That's on a basic level. On a deeper level, on a psychological level, and spiritual level, we could say as follows. Day refers to times that are good, and night refers to times that are a little bit more challenging. In our lives, there are day times and night times. There are day days and night days. What I mean by that is some days, everything's clicking, all cylinders, things are, we feel good about ourselves, we feel connected to our purpose, we feel motivated to get up and do amazing things. Some days we feel alive, and that we would call a day. It's bright outside, the sun is shining, metaphorically, and maybe even literally. Everything is good, everything is wonderful, we're whistling a happy tune, life is good. And then there are those days that can be likened to night, those days where we struggle, those days that we have challenges, those days where we feel maybe not so connected with our purpose, not so connected with where we need to be. Those are the nights. And what the Torah is reminding us is when it's day, make sure you remember the cloud. Bring a cloud with you. The cloud could also mean a little bit of gloom. In other words, when things are going well, hold on. Remember, they're not always going to be great. Remember the cloud. Remember that things can turn a little bit. Make sure you're prepared. Make sure you're prepared for something coming out of left field to disrupt. You have all these plans. It's wonderful. Be ready for something, perhaps, to throw things a little off kilter. That doesn't mean to always be negative and to always be you know, down on life. It just means... To be prepared. It's kind of like what Joseph said. Seven years of plenty. It's going to be a ton of food. Okay, great. But make sure you remember that that's not always going to be good. You're going to have seven years of famine. Make sure you save up during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. By day, remember the pillar of cloud. And at night, conversely, when things are dark, when things are gloomy, when things are depressing, when it doesn't seem like to be a light at the end of the tunnel, remember the light. Remember the fire. The fire will give them light, and that means always Remember that there is a better time ahead. Never believe, even in those moments of darkness, that so it is and so it will always be. Remember that it will get better. And have faith and trust that Hashem will give you exactly what you need to make everything better. So that's the cloud by day and the fire at night. So on a basic level, just to recap, the cloud provides shade and the fire provides light, and these are utilitarian blessings and miracles that help the Jews in their travels. That's on a basic level. On a deeper level, in the good times, remember that there may be not-so-good times up ahead, and in the not-so-good times, remember that there will be, for sure, good times up ahead, and this keeps us on an even keel. As um, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers had a very dramatic day yesterday, which we won't talk about right now, but... Um, one thing that I will mention is what I remember Coach Cower, Bill Cower, once said, who was the former coach of the, uh, the, of the Pittsburgh Steelers, he, I once heard him give a, one of these motivational talks. It's interesting to see what coaches tell their players. He said, guys, don't, right before game, don't get too high with the highs and don't get too low with the lows. Right? When things are going well for your team, it's like, oh, amazing, we're going to win. If you take it, don't be overconfident. And don't get too low with the lows. If you're not, if you're down in the game, if you're, you know, if the other team is ahead, don't give up. It's so important because otherwise, psychologically, when you're ahead, you're just getting, I mean, I just think of the Falcons, Patriots, Super Bowl, right? Like, you're ahead and then you, like, take your foot off the accelerator because you're like, oh, this is great. We can't lose. And then when you're starting to lose, then you panic. So either way, it's not good. You just got to stay even keel. Did you see the Raiders-Chargers game, what you were saying during it? No, what were they saying? They went into overtime. Yeah. And actually the commentator said, you know, <laughs> if they were to take a knee, if it's a tie. Right, they the both Chargers go in. And the Raiders right. both go <laughs> exactly. to the playoffs. The Steelers are out. <laughs> exactly. And they almost did, but then the Chargers, well, it was, I think it was Raiders ball, the Chargers took a timeout, and then I think it was down to about a, less than a minute. And then it's like the Raiders kind of figured, we Listen, get, we get better games. At the end of the day, yeah. like tonight's game, 
By the way, tonight we have like multiple classes. There also happens to be a college football championship game, Georgia, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. But again, you could always get updates. It's fine. You could always get updates later. So, and, sure. What is it? Oh wow! Thank you. Look at this. Another perk for the another perk for the in person. Lemon mint. What is this? Lemon mint like lemonade? Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, beautiful. Rabbi? Yes, Donna. While I take a sip. Right. For so, sure. Um, it's good. Was the climate yeah. in you. Israel at that time able to provide a rainbow? Because your conversation about the, you know, the clouds and things made me think of Noah's rainbow. That's a very interesting question. I would imagine, I guess it would be cool to imagine you know, a walking rainbow cloud with a rainbow with them. I think that's what you're suggesting. That would be, I don't, I've never heard that, but although I'm not, I don't know all the commentaries either, you know, I don't, I've never studied all of them. So it would be an interesting, you know, if it's sunny and there's some, uh, there's a cloud, maybe they had some color. It wasn't just, you know. The time, the appropriate time for it to come would be with the golden calf because God to remind himself, right? Not to. Right. <laughs> That's where Moses intervenes. He says, whoa, God, let me walk you down from the edge over there. You got it? I have an interesting All right, hold on one second. Yes, Mark. It's, you know, it says that the God himself was on the, the pillar, uh, was on the pillar of cloud and, and, and the fire. Right. They were his emissary. But the note here says, despite God's presence, this is from what Shekhinah, Devik Tov, no, it's from Devik Tov. Uh, he had the pillar of cloud guide them. Because they could not look directly Interesting. at the splendor of the Shaheen. Interesting. Listen to this. Mark is adding from a commentary the following. Very interesting. It says, so why did God send the cloud? Because Hashem, God Almighty, was traveling with the Jewish people, was leading them. He was inside it. He was yeah, inside, inside, the, inside that, that camp, the encampment, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, so God put a cloud to intervene between them and God, so to speak, so that they wouldn't look directly at God. Very interesting take. Although it kind of like concretizes the conversation, but I appreciate the, uh, the imagery. We have this cloud that acts almost like a diffuser. It's almost like a... Um, like a huh? Like a garment. Like a garment or like a screen. Or I'm thinking, you know, like glass. Sometimes you have like frosted glass. So it's not like you can't see through, so it's a little bit frosted. You got your little frosted cloud cover so that you can't like, ah, oh, you can't see the rainbow. I don't know if the God is a rainbow, but, but like you can't time, see. Like in the time, like a garment. Right, yeah, yeah. In the language of time, you would see a garment, exactly. All right, let's continue verse 22. So we have a multiple levels here. We have now three explanations for the cloud and or the fire. One, a basic explanation, shade and light. Deeper explanation, don't get too high with the highs. Don't get too low with the lows. And another, I guess, pragmatic consideration of not gazing directly at the divine presence. Verse 22. He, which is God. Let's check it out over, check it out over here inside as well. God did not move away the pillar of cloud by day. Which Rashi says, until the pillar of fire was fully illuminated. Interesting. So the cloud didn't move away until the fire was fully illuminated. Nor did he move the pillar of fire at night from before the people until the pillar of cloud had, full, had risen fully. I guess this is Rashi that says that one didn't leave until the other emerged. So the cloud stayed until the fire was there to take over. And the fire stayed until the cloud was there to take over. Okay, let's toggle Rashi and see if we missed something that we would want to fill in. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Yeah, Rashi likens it to a, a, a sun, like the sun and the moon. He says, before this one would set completely, the other would rise. Right. Yeah. Right. So one didn't leave until the other one came. I was actually thinking about sun and moon yeah. in this context. Yeah. Okay, good. I think we covered with the, with the translation and the commentary. 
I think we covered Rashi pretty much. All right, let's move on. Exodus chapter 14, verse 1, still in the middle of the first reading. Let's jump in. So God spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and let them turn back. Listen to this. Let them turn back, which Rashi says, in order to confuse Pharaoh. This is going to confuse the Egyptians when they see or that when they get word that the Jews are actually retracing their footsteps and heading backwards. So God says to Moses, tell them to start heading back in order to confuse Pharaoh and encamp in front of the mouth of the rocks, which is known as Pihachirot, between Migdal and the sea. You should encamp opposite the Egyptian deity of Baal by the sea in order to confuse the Egyptians further. Essentially, and again, I wish we had a map. I wish it would be really cool to have a map with the cities, with all these places charted out. And I'm not saying that it doesn't exist in the Squamish. I just I couldn't find it in my brief uh, search over here. It would be nice to see a map to show exactly like how, where they went forward and where they retraced their footsteps a few steps back. And all of this was, I mean, I'm going to use my own words here, to egg on the Egyptians and basically make them feel like, oh, the Jews are scared, the Jews are confused, the Jews are having second thoughts, the Jews are, you know, are, are leaderless, they are aimless, they're vulnerable. This was all in order to egg on the Egyptians, to have them, you know, to kind of encourage them to chase after the Jews and to end with the ultimate finale of the Egyptians drowning in the sea. All of this is to set that up. Um, okay, so that was God's command. God had told them exactly what to do. Third verse. This is all God telling Moses what's going to happen. God is giving Moses an FYI. You have to understand, Moses, knowing God's plan, Moses ought to never panic. God told Moses by the plagues, it's going to take 10 plagues, more or less, until they let you out, until Pharaoh says, go, don't, be, don't panic. God tells Moses, now what's going to happen? You're going to go, you go back, and as you'll see soon, Pharaoh's going to get excited, and, and et cetera, but it's all going to end good. When you know the end of the story, it's so much easier to withstand the drama, you know what I mean? It's like, when you know the end of the story, the hero wins, the hero's okay, you know, it rides off into the sunset you're a little less on edge as the narrative unfolds because you know it's going to end okay. So this is what God does with Moses. And now Moses has... Well, that's what we, we live by these days because Messiah is going to be... Yes. <laughs> yes. You can t yes. You took the words out of my mouth. This is exactly how we are meant to, to, go, to right. go through life is by recognizing that and believing with faith and pure faith, pure amuna, pure belief, trust, that Mashiach is coming. When is Mashiach coming? Today. Right? And therefore, we can get through the, 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 the intermediate stuff. Right? We can get through the challenges because we know how it ends. It ends in a good place. So listen. I think I found a map. Oh, you um, do have a map? Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. um, share it in the chat. Did you? Yes. Let's see. Let's see what we got over here. Oh, Wow. This is like a complicated map situation. There's a possible route, it says. Where are they? Memphis. Wow, they started in Memphis? Kidding. <laughs> Ramses. Migdal. Interesting. But I don't know where the initial... Oh, I see it. I see it. Ocean Ramses. I know. It's the... Um, you see... They go from Ramses to Sukkot to Etam, and then there's a little arrow that goes down and back, like a little backwards and down to Piachirot on the sea. That's where they're going a little bit. They're not, they're not continuing to move forward. They're moving a little bit backwards. Not, not, they're not re literally rechasing their footsteps, but they are turning a little bit back. I actually like this map. I think this map could be, could be legit. When I say could be legit. Right. Yeah, they're going back. Can I can I turn this around so that you guys can see it? Um, like an owl. Like an owl. It's basically they start off over here. I mean, we they don't know for sure. There's question marks over here, but more or less, I think this makes sense. They're starting off over here. They're it's a moving. Detour. Yeah, they're it's moving there, 
and then they go a little bit backwards and down and, and camp by the sea. And that is enough of a, of a pattern to make the Egyptians think that the Jews are not continuing that way, but they're, they're starting to head back. They sense a little vulnerability, so they decide to pounce. That, yeah, that makes sense to me. I like it. Okay, good, thank you for sharing. Um, let's continue. Oh, this is still God telling, telling Moses what to tell the people, how to lead them. And take a look at, at God reassuring Moses, all is going to be good, and here's how, how it's going to play out. Verse number three. So Pharaoh will say about the children of Israel, they are trapped in the land. The desert has closed in upon them. They're trapped in the land. The desert has closed in upon them. What does that mean? To me, what that means is, you know how people get disoriented in the desert? It's like a thing. It's a known thing. People get disoriented. Mirage, you think there's water, there's no water. You get disoriented. Hallucinations, all that sort of thing. And, and then people, people die. You know, because they can't, they just can't get out. They can't, they can't find their way out. Even if they were close to, to a way out, just get disoriented. So Pharaoh, God says, is going to say about the children of Israel, they're trapped, their desert has closed in, they're stuck, they're done. Continue, verse number four. And I will harden, God says, I will harden once again. The chizakti, not make heavy, but I will harden, make stubborn Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will be glorified through wreaking vengeance on Pharaoh and his whole army. And Egypt will know that I am God. The children of Israel did so as they had been commanded. So this is exactly what happens as the narrative will continue. God tells Moses, take them back. Pharaoh's going to get, his eyes are going to open up like saucers. Oh my gosh, the Jews are stuck. The Jews are flailing. They're in trouble. I'm going to harden his heart. He's going to run after you guys. And because of this will be the ultimate glorification. I'll become glorified or honored through Pharaoh, his entire force. And that means through the destruction of Pharaoh and his army, which will happen, which will happen with the splitting of the sea. All right, that's verse number four. Let's continue. Verse number five. As Rashi explains... All of this played out over a number of days. Because up until now, all we've read about is the actual journey that the Jews took and God telling Moses what to do to kind of lead the, the, the Egyptians into position. It's kind of like speaking of football. It's like um, a cornerback kind of giving some space between them and the receiver to egg on the, the quarterback, the, the cornerback, giving like a little bit, of, little bit too much space, leaving the receiver open, so that the quarterback throws a pass, like on the sideline pass, but the cornerback is setting it up to step in front, pick it off, and return it for a touchdown the other way. It's like classic setup. Like you pretend like you're, you're leaving the guy open, and then the second you see the, you second you see the twitch, you, you dash, and you know that that's going to happen. You pick it off. It's like, this is what's going on. I mean, not exactly, but the Jews are going to pretend like, oh, they're flailing, oh, they're vulnerable. It's going to set up, I mean, a little bit different, but set up Pharaoh's approach and pick them off with the, uh, with the sea. Let's continue. So this is what happened. Three days the Jews traveled. On the fourth day, as Rashi clarifies, as the sages clarify, verse number five, on the fourth day, after the Exodus, it was reported to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what have we done that we have sent away Israel from serving us? What were we thinking that we let our labor force go? There are supply chain shortages. Nothing is getting done. Buildings are, all the construction is stopped. Right? Can we relate? Right? Everything, the country shut down. We need our, we need our uh, Israelites back. We need our slave force back. What have we done? This is, a, this is what we call seller's remorse or releaser's remorse. Let's continue. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot. And as Rashi says, he did it himself. 
He was so enthused about chasing after the Jews that he did it himself. And he persuaded, he took his people, he persuaded his people to come with him. He said, guys, we're going to get the Jews back. We're going to get the Israelites. We're going to bring them back. We're going to round them up, herd them up, and bring them back. And everybody got excited about it. So what did he take? Verse 7. Um, he took 600 select chariots and all the remaining chariots of Egypt with officers over them all. He took 600 select chariots. That means maybe like I'm picturing like the nicest of the nice. Or maybe the armed ones, like the ones that had like, you know, the tank, the tank chariots. And then he took all of the other chariots, anything, that, anything else that he could find, and he put officers, military officers, commanding every single one of those chariots. Verse number eight. Hold on, let's, you know, let's just do one verse and then we'll circle back. Um, verse 8, and the Lord, because this is the last one of the reading. And the Lord hardened, strengthened, hardened, made stubborn the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, just as God had predicted. And he, Pharaoh, chased, um, and he chased after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel were marching out triumphantly. The children of Israel were going out triumphantly. So even as the uh, even as Pharaoh and the Egyptians begin the chase, the Jews, meanwhile, are doing their thing, marching forward. Okay, Mark, what do you have? <clears throat> this is about the chariots. Yes. It says, where did those animals that pulled the chariots come from? Good. And this is what Rashi says. If you will say that they came from the Egyptians, has it not been said, and all the livestock of Egypt died? Right. But if you will say they were those they were from those belonging to Israel, has it not been said, and our livestock will also go with us? Who's who's been were they? They were of those who feared the word of Hashem. From what we learn here, Rabbi Shimon would say, during wartime, when it comes to even the best among Egyptians, kill him. When it comes to even the best among snakes, crush his brain. In other words, they're saying the livestock came from the good Egyptians. Right. Let me, so let me just say this so that make sure that everybody heard it because I don't know how, how all the mic picks up. Basically, Mark is quoting this Rashi that I actually pulled up on the screen, which is a, a, just a, a very, very interesting Rashi. Rashi asks the Klutzkasha, the obvious question, which is, one second, they had all these chariots, 600 of the good chariots, of the best chariots, plus all the other chariots. We're talking about thousands of chariots, Right. And they had to be pulled by animals because a chariot, they didn't have engines then. So they, you needed animals. Horsepower, actual horses, or whatever it was that was pulling them. Where did you get the animals? All the animals died. You would think all the animals died in the plagues. So Rashi explains that it was those who feared God. Remember by the plague of hail, the hail, so there was a plague of plague that killed the livestock, and then again the plague of hail. In both of these cases, those that feared God and brought the animals into their homes or into the houses under shelter, the animals survived. So here the Torah is alluding to the fact, by telling us that the Egyptians chased with chariots that were pulled ostensibly by animals, that even the God-fearing Egyptians ended up donating their animals to the cause to get the Jews. Even the ones that we think were the righteous Egyptians they were also not so righteous. They were also looking to keep the Jews enslaved or to get them back as slaves. They weren't so kosher, even the kosher ones. Which is why Rashi, Rashi quotes from the Talmud, from the Mechildash, from the Medrash, Rabbi Shimon, who's, I'm assuming, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great mystic and the great scholar who says, when you, when you approach your enemy, even if they pretend not to be an enemy, don't fall for it. Right? Your enemy's going to say, oh no, I'm not an enemy. And then it's going to stab you in the back. In wartime, even who, the one that seems like an innocent Egyptian, it's not about Egypt, by the way. This is not like targeting Egyptians. The point is, when battling an enemy, don't be misled by emotion. Don't be misled by compassion because it might turn out to devastate you. Now, when should you do compassion? Is there any place for compassion? Okay, these are, these are 
obviously discussions that are complex and far beyond the scope of the conversation. The point simply here is, here we see Egyptians that were God-fearing, that were what we would call maybe noble and righteous, and they were the ones that were fueling this war effort, or this effort to get the Jews back and to, to re-enslave them. So there you go. That was the good Egyptians. So is there such a thing as, as a good enemy? I don't know. That's what, that's what it seems like Rabbi Shem is saying. Maybe not such a good enemy. When you see a snake, oh, such a beautiful snake, a pretty snake, yeah, it's still poisonous. Right? Don't, don't let your guard down. I think that's the point. Don't let your guard down. What, what exactly to do? You know, consult your local whatever, expert. But don't let, for sure, don't let your guard down. That, that, that we can definitely say. Um, yeah. Oh, listen to this Rashi. The last Rashi on the first reading, or the second to last Rashi, says, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Rashi says, because he vacillated about whether to pursue the Israelites or not. Turns out, according to this, according to this Rashi, Pharaoh was not 100% gung-ho to chase, to, to chase the Jews. He was actually a bit ambivalent about whether or not to chase the Jews. So God hardened his heart to pursue them. God says, you know what? If you have a question already, I'll make it easy. Let me put you over the edge. Let's do this. Why? We said before um, in previous weeks. Is God taking away free choice? Yeah, you could say that, or you could say no. The Pharaoh had put himself in a position where he was already like too, too entrenched to back down. Um, he wanted to do this. He was just maybe scared. So, so God said, let me take away your fear and then let you do what you want to do, etc. Or, or it's for the sake of, of, of the, the miracles that would ensue. Either way, we have various ways of understanding this. All right, on to the second reading. This is Genesis, sorry, Exodus chapter 14, verse number 9. And... This will take us to the dramatic confrontation between Egypt and Israel, or the Egyptians and the Israelites, at the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds. By the way, just a clarification. Let me stop sharing for a moment, and a point of clarification. Most of the times, sorry, in most translations, Yam Suf, the Hebrew, Yam Suf, is translated as the Red Sea. The Red Sea. However, the literal translation of Yam Suf, Yam means sea, and suf means reeds, R-E-E-D-S, not R-E-D, R-E-E-D. Reed, not red. So in many translations, you'll find the sea, that split, which we'll get to, you know, tomorrow, um, at, referred to as the Sea of Reeds. Sometimes you'll see it as the Red Sea, sometimes Sea of Reeds. According to the map, let's see, um, Donna's map, it says Red Sea. Okay, Red Sea. It could, be, it could also be the Red Sea, but it could also be the, it could be that it's still called in Torah, in biblical language, the Sea of Reeds. Now, what did I do here? It looks like I closed a tab by accident. Or maybe it's something else. One second. Hold on. Yeah. Okay, back inside. Let's, keep, let's move forward. All right, Exodus chapter 14, verse number 9. So the Egyptians chased after them. The Egyptians started chasing after the Jews and overtook them. Encamped while they were encamped by the sea. Let's continue. Every horse, yep, it was horses, horsepower. Every horse of Pharaoh's chariots, his horsemen and his army were there. So again, what was there? You had the chariots. You had the horses that drew the chariots, the horsemen who were in charge of the horses, and the army that was on the chariots. Yeah? You had chariots with soldiers, horses and horsemen, and all of them, thousands, 600 of the best ones, plus all of the other chariots of Egypt, all chasing, pursuing, and now overtaking the Jews. And where did it happen? It happened by the mouth of the rocks, Pihachirot, Opposite, or in front of, Baal Tzaphon, right by the water. So verse 10, Pharaoh advanced ahead of his troops. He went ahead, as Rashi says, usually kings go in the back. Usually kings actually don't show up to the, to the battlefield. What, what's the king doing on a battlefield? King's staying at home in the palace, and uh, that's it. In this case, Pharaoh himself went, 
And he went at the head. He went at the head of the line. He went at the, the front of his army, which is wildly, wildly unusual. Pharaoh advanced ahead of his troops. Um, and he had told them, Rashi says, he had told them that if you follow me, I will go ahead. I'm not just sending you, I'm not sending you alone. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go ahead of you. That's how he got, one of the ways that he got buy-in from his people to pursue the Jews is him promising to be there and to be at the head. So Pharaoh drew near and he went at the head. The children of Israel raised their eyes and look, the Egyptians were advancing after them and as Rashi says, they, the Egyptians were in total unity. They were amongst themselves. They all were filled with the same thoughts, the same devious plot to recapture, to re-enslave the Jewish people. Let's continue inside. They were very frightened. The Jews were, the Israelites were. They were very frightened. And so the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Let's take a look at some Rashi's over here and look at some powerful stuff. As I said before, Pharaoh drew himself near and strove to go before them, his army, as he had stipulated with them. The Egyptians were advancing. Nosea is in the singular, Rashi says, with one accord like one man. In other words, they were all together in the same idea. They cried out, Rashi says, why did the Jews cry out to God? They seized the art of their ancestors. They, Rashi uses a beautiful language with the, which the Rebbe um, elaborates on and explains what it means, but we're going to keep it simple. The Jews took, they, they channeled the art of their ancestors, i.e. they prayed, just like their ancestors, but they prayed. Concerning Abraham, it says, to the place where he had stood before the Lord, he prayed. Concerning Isaac, it says, to pray in the field. Concerning Jacob, he entreated the omnipresent. All three patriarchs prayed. And so thus, when the Jews are in a tzara, when they're in a, when they're in a, a challenge, what do they do? They pray. So here we have um, the first mention. It's interesting. Here we have a first mention, maybe not the first, but a first mention, or a, an early mention of prayer being a Jewish thing that happens in times of distress. Not only in times of distress, mm -hmm. but here we have a context for prayer. The Jews are collectively in a very troubling situation. They're being pinned against the sea by the advancing, not advancing anymore, by the approaching Egyptians. Um, the Egyptians are coming at them with all of their firepower. They're very frightened. How do I know they're very frightened? Literally. Literally, the Torah says that. They were very frightened. That's the exact words of the Torah. It says, uh, They were afraid a lot, very frightened. And they cried out. And Rashi says, why did they cry out? They were davening. They were praying. Why were they praying in times of challenge by crying out to God? Because that's what we do. Abraham did it. Isaac did it. Jacob did it. That's what we do. Now, we don't only pray. You know, it's like they say there are no atheists in a foxhole. We don't only pray. Remember, there was a song um, when I was a kid, it was called the Atheist Convention in L.A. That's hmm. what it was called. The Atheist Convention in L.A. Talks about an atheist convention in Los Angeles and how all the, a a bunch of atheists, you know, board a plane to go to L.A. Well, middle of the plane, the engine goes out. Oh, this one says, Allah, this one's this. And the Jew says, Shema Yisrael. And then, thank God, the plane lands. So this one is this, and this one's this. And the Jew, he's a good, nice, uh, you know, he's a, he's a religious Jew living somewhere. It's a cute song. And it evokes the fact that you don't believe until, uh-oh, something's some panicking, and then, you know, it comes out. Your mileage may vary, of course. You know, hashtag not all, not all atheists are alike. But it was a cute song, and I thought to, to remind, you know, maybe if you remind me after the class, like now-ish, I'll, uh, I'll play the song. Let's continue. So the Jews are panicked. So what happens? They said to Moses as follows, and now you see, this is the first time, first time of many that the Jews, a eh, little bit, a little, turn a little bit, even against Moses. They said to Moses, they said to Moshe, is it, and such a Jewish rhetorical question. Is it because there is a shortage of graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the desert? What? We couldn't die there. You had to take us here to die. That's such a Jewish question, right? You, you took us out to the desert to kill us. 
Eh, what's going on? What is this that you have done to us in taking us out of Egypt? Let's continue verse 12. Aren't these the words that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone and we will serve the Egyptians because we would rather serve the Egyptians than die in the desert? We told you this the whole, this is now next level. We told you this from the beginning, Moses. You shouldn't have taken us out. We didn't want to go because at least we were alive, even though in slaves, albeit slaves, but we were alive as opposed to now being slaughtered brutally by the Egyptians. Basically, they, at this point, they believed they were done. They had escaped. They had been freed for about a week. And now it was done. It was end of story, curtain, final curtain, done. Finished, end of the Jewish people, end of the children of Israel. So they turn on Moses. Why'd you do it? We told you not to. It's a very emotional, a lot of panic. A lot of panic over here. Now, now you have to understand this. Moses is not panicking. And I told you this before. Moses is not panicking because he literally knows the script. God told him to set Pharaoh up. He told him that he's going to make Pharaoh chase. He told him that he's going to perform great miracles of salvation. And that's going to be the end of Pharaoh. Moses has the script. So while everyone else is like, oh no, it's the end, Moses is like, I literally have seen the screenplay. I know how it ends. This is not the end. I've seen, I've seen the script. This is not the I've heard the script from the author. It's not the end. But what are you going to do? The people are panicking. Let's continue. Verse 13. So Moses does what he has to. Right? He tries to reassure them in this very uh, difficult moment. So Moshe says to the people, don't be afraid. Al-tiru, al-tiro. You're very afraid. You're very, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. See God's salvation that he will perform for you today. You may, be, you may be seeing the Egyptians today, but you will never see them again. God will fight for you, but you must remain Silent that takes us to the end of verse 13 uh, of, of the second reading. Moses says to the people, I hear your I hear your panic, I understand your fear. You have zero, like nothing. I don't I like I, I imagine if I was Moses, how do you convey the fact that you have literally nothing to worry about? It's not even a question, well, maybe it's gonna end bad. It's not even a question. God told you when it was amazing, when you were in the clear, this is what's going to happen. He's going to come after you. It's like you know the whole thing is scripted. You, you know it. It's not even a question, well, I, I, I believe that God's going to do it. I hope God's going to do it. No, you, you know it's going to happen. How do you convey that to someone else who doesn't have that clarity? It's hard. Moses tries to do it. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the salvation. You're never going to see the Egyptians after today. You'll never see them again. God's going to fight for you. Remain silent. Stop complaining. <laughs> Take it easy. According to um, our sages, these two verses, 13 and 14, have a bit of a deeper message. There were four groups that splintered when they were at the sea at this point. One group said, let us just jump into the sea and commit mass suicide. Let's just, that's it. The next, the next group said, let's surrender and go back to Egypt. The third group said, let's fight to the death. And the fifth group, sorry, and the fourth group said, let's dive and let's pray. Again, four groups. One said, let's give it up. Let's give up, not give it up. Let's give up and just suicide, just jump into the ocean and that's it. Because we can't face the Egyptians. One says on the, the opposite. Let's surrender and go back with the Egyptians. Wave the white flag. One says, let's fight to the death. And the last one says, let's pray to God. Moses says to all four, incorrect. So to the, number, the first, uh, uh, first um, group, he says, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will wreak for you today. In other words, don't, don't give up your life. Don't commit suicide. Don't, don't jump into the, to the water. Stand firm. 
Then he says to the second group, you've seen the Egyptians today, you're never going to see them again. Don't go back with the Egyptians. To the third group, let's fight. No, God will fight for you. To the fourth group that says to pray, he says, you shall remain silent. In other words, all of these are not the approach. You don't need to give up. You don't need to give in. You don't need to fight. You don't need to pray. What do you need to do? Move forward. Keep on moving. God said, you're moving to Sinai. You're, you're not moving to Sinai, but you're marching towards Sinai. Keep on marching. Keep on moving. And that's how the next reading begins, where Moses says to the people, so what should you do? This is all what you shouldn't do. What should you do? Yeah. Vaiso. Keep on moving. Keep on moving forward. No need to cry out. No need to panic. Keep on moving. Nothing will get in your way. Ah, you're going to tell me there's a sea in front of me? One second. Who's more real? What's more real? God or the sea? Sometimes in life we have, to, we have to answer that question. We have to ask and answer that question for ourselves. What's more real? God or the sea? Think about it in our lives, right? Sometimes we say, well, I wish I could do the mitzvah, but I can't because... X, Y, Z. What's more real? God or the sea? And I want to do quotes around the sea because I don't mean only the sea. I mean whatever the sea is for us. Somebody says, I have a business. I have to work on uh, you know, this day and that day and the other day that I, you know, Hashem says, I'd rather you not work on it, I, I, but I have to. What's more real, right? God or the sea? It's the same question. Again, you know, all, everything, you know, in, in its right time and its life is a journey. But the point is like this. The point is, that Moses tells the people, don't be nispal, don't be so intimidated by the sea. Keep on marching and you'll see that the sea will split. I know I'm saying sea a few times here, but you will witness with your own eyes how everything will disappear. Moses has clarity. It's good to have clarity in life. It's so good to have clarity in life. When you have clarity, man, you can take on any obstacle and you can be confident. You're like, yeah, I got this. There's no problem. It's, huh? It's also a sign of a good uh, leader. Right. Uh, remember one of our leader at work, uh, like he said that that was not our company, not a company. We share uh, office with, but he said that he never let you know his emotion on this thing. Right. You say. Yeah. And you know it always stayed with me because I see also manager. You know if you see your manager being like this, like in, in adversity. Right. Also, Sandrina is making a great point. She's saying that she had experience in work where she had a manager who would always remain calm even when there were stressful situations. And the manager said that their, their philosophy is don't wear the emotions on the sleeve. Because just because you're afraid doesn't mean everyone else has to panic. But in this case, Moshe actually wasn't afraid. He knew the, he knew the story. It's like... Trying to even imagine, like, oh, I have a good example. Let's say you watch a movie. Yeah, a thriller, and you, you watch it to the end. You know how it works out. And then you watch it with someone else. Aside from the fact that it's a movie and not real life. Aside, aside from all that. You shouldn't panic anyway, even in, in a movie you see it for the first time, because, you know, it's all, it's all good. But I'm saying you watch it with someone else a second time, and they're like, you know, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And you're like, yeah. I mean, you don't, I'm not saying to ruin it for them, but you're not panicked because you've, you've seen it to the end. You know how it plays out. That's how, that's, that's, what, that's how God kind of, that's how God brings Moses into his world a little bit to say, you know, look at it from my perspective. This is all good. Nothing to panic about. All right, so um, Mark, you had something? Yeah. Um, I don't want to steal your kibbutz, but the first uh, Pusik of the next Aliyah yeah. uh, says Moses tells the people to uh, be silent uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will do that for you but when according to Rashi it says Moses was praying the first person and God says to him, God tells him enough, enough keep yeah. on moving right yeah so then it got, Moses himself might have been praying okay, we'll, we'll say that for tomorrow right. so here's what I want to conclude with and kind of wrap up some of the insights for today so number one, number one, first idea is that we should try to set ourselves up for success and not failure. In other words, just like God takes the Jews on a roundabout way so that when they, if and when they panic, they shouldn't have an easy way back, right? Make it a little bit complicated to find their way back home. So I don't mean literally like, you know, drive around the block or whatever, but 
in life, let's let's make let's try to position ourselves for success and not failure. Like if we go in on something, we should go all in and not give ourselves not go only halfway in and say, you know, well that will be easier to get back out because I only went in halfway. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yes. Only to tread a little bit in to take a safe to tread in safely so that we could always get out of it safely, but rather we should invest, be all in on whatever good positive things we're doing, we should be all in on so that we're invested. And when we're invested, then we won't, uh, we won't flight. Fight, we will fight and not flight. There's something I've never seen before in Rashi where it says the Egyptians were journeying after them. Yeah. It says, behold, Egypt was journeying after them. The Israelites saw the ministering angel of Egypt traveling from the heavens to aid Egypt. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Every, every nation has an angel. The angel of Egypt was traveling. Yeah. That's what it says. So number one is, let's be all in on the good things. Number two. Number two is, it's good to know the plan. It's going to be good. What was the line that I said? The famous line, the end is good. If it's not, if it's not good, it's not the end. Right? There you go. The end is good. If it's not, it's not good, it's not the end. Um, next idea is about, yeah, I mean, the same thing about the fear and the panic and the four and the four groups. The idea is here, keep on moving. Don't let the sea get in the way. If it's sea or God, choose God, not the sea. Who's more real, God or the sea? God every day of the week. Now, Georgia and Alabama, I'll let you decide. But God versus C, I, I, I got that picked. I got God. I got God with the points. All right. Great to see everybody. Sarah, Olia, Dina, great to see you guys. Um, have a wonderful day. Don't forget, tonight we have so much going on. We have a 7.30 RCS. We have an 8 o'clock um, RCS is about blessings and gratitude. And then at 8 p.m., we have another class, which is uh, with Mrs. Nomi Freeman, called How to Think Like a Hasidic Master. Both will be streaming, and uh, both are in person and streaming. You can catch one or both. You can catch the recordings of one or both. So come join either in person or online. More information on the website. And don't forget tomorrow night, Mastering Our New World with Rabbi Label Wolf from Australia. Not to be missed. He's amazing. Okay. All right. We'll see you guys. I'm going to close it out. Bye, guys. Have a wonderful day. See you guys. Take care, everybody. Pleasure. Rashi says, is it because they're not great? And then it says,